You're listening to the local news hour. Let's find out what's in store for our weather today and for the weekend. On the phone, I have Thomas Geboy with ABC4. Good morning, Tom. Good morning and happy Friday to you. Hopefully uh, the end of the work week is going to go well. And today we're also going to be looking at some milder temperatures. So yesterday high pressure was in control that led to our sunshine. We had a northerly flow of wind, which is why temperatures were, were about 5 to 10 degrees below average in Park City. But as that high pressure moves further away to the east, we're going to see more of a southerly flow. And that's going to help the temperatures warm up very close to our seasonal average in Park City. We'll top out at 37. We'll see partly cloudy to partly sunny skies. And it's not going to feel too bad, but with any small puff of wind with temperatures in the 30s, it'll probably make it feel just that little bit colder. And then into tonight won't be as cold compared to what we're waking up to this morning as we drop to 17 degrees, mostly cloudy skies, but not really looking at any chance for wet weather. For our Saturday as we begin the weekend, mostly sunny with a high of 35 and then mostly cloudy skies on Saturday night as we drop, drop to 19. So for today and tomorrow, I'm not expecting too many differences between the next couple of days. But going into Sunday, we will see a weak system move in from our north and the best chance for wet weather looks like it's going to be during the first half of the day, just under a 50-50 chance at this point for some mainly light snow showers. So it won't be anything significant, but don't be surprised between Saturday night and Sunday morning if there's at least a little bit of light snow around Park City. But once we get into the afternoon, we should transition back to partly cloudy skies and the winds returning a little bit more out of the northwest. The daytime high will come down slightly. We'll be more so in the lower 30s for our Sunday, dropping to 19 degrees on Sunday night, mostly clear. And then for President's Day through the middle of next week, Forecast models are very optimistic that we're going to be moving into a much more active pattern. So while Monday likely starts on the quiet side, the chance for snow will start to increase as we go into the second half of the day. The daytime high climbing to the middle 30s. Then things ramp up even more as a bigger storm system will be moving in from Tuesday into Wednesday. This will have a potent cold front attached to it. On Tuesday, the high will be in the middle 30s. But by Tuesday into Wednesday, that daytime high will come down by about 10 degrees. So a high of only 23 on Wednesday and highs will be in the middle 20s more or less through next Thursday, but from Tuesday into Wednesday into Thursday, snow is likely, and we could be talking about some pretty significant accumulations. So mostly quiet over the next couple of days, a slight chance on Sunday, not looking too bad. So as a whole, the President's Day weekend looking good, then things ramp up in a very big way by the middle of next week, Roger. So it sounds like we're going to make our tourist visitors happy by giving them a little, little snow next week. Yeah, it sure seems like it. I mean, it's probably going to be pretty good up in the resorts. And of course, we'll take all the moisture that we can get. And just kind of looking at some of the early returns on the forecast models, this could be one of our bigger systems that we see so far this year. Just hopefully uh, the models continue to trend in that direction just because we, we need the moisture first and foremost. It, Thomas, do you have any sense of where we are in terms of moisture count for the year? Or how, how are we doing? So, so far, our snowpack is doing great, and that's what we really need to see. Most spots have already seen, especially up in the mountains, more snow than what we saw all of last year. And typically, the average peak when it comes to the snowpack is the beginning of April. So we still have time to kind of tack that on. So we're in a very good spot. Just need to keep this momentum going, and all signs are pointing to keeping that momentum going into next week. Thanks much, and have a great weekend. You too. All right, now let's find out what all this cold weather means in the backcountry. On the phone, we have Greg with the Utah Avalanche Center with today's conditions. Good morning. Um, yeah, it's been quiet in the avalanche world uh, for the past few weeks. Certainly, we had a lot more activity earlier this year. Um, we did have a pretty strong wind event on Wednesday, however. Uh, we picked up a few inches of snow on Thursday, uh, on Tuesday, sorry, some of you may remember, um, about five inches or so. And then some strong northeast winds on Wednesday uh, created a lot of wind-drifted snow at the mid and upper elevations, even some, some low elevation aspects as well. Um, so we did see some avalanche activity on Wednesday from that. And then when I was out yesterday, the, the wind drifts I was finding, they were unreactive. So um, we're going with a low avalanche danger today, but risk is inherent in mountain travel. So there's two concerns to watch for today. Um, I do think that you, you can find pockets of reactive wind drifted snow. I think on, uh, on small slopes, this won't be a big deal. However, uh, we're noticing some people are getting into bigger terrain. Um, bigger, steeper terrain with consequences. So even though you could get involved in a small wind drift, um, if you consider the consequences, like maybe you're above a cliff band or something like that, where getting caught in a small avalanche could carry over some rocks. Um, also, I'm not expecting it to be all that warm today, but that sun is pretty strong. So there could be some small avalanches involving wet snow due to warming. And uh, just advising people that you just heard the weather forecast, we're uh, expecting some uh, increased uh, increased storminess this coming week. Uh, let's hope. We certainly need it. 
Um, so advising people that if you are uh, planning on getting out and getting into some bigger terrain, this is the time to do it. Um, we're going to be seeing changes in the weather, we hope, certainly by um, by Monday. So enjoy the, the, the quiet weather now. We may get a few inches of snow Saturday night into Sunday. So um, enjoy the quiet weather, the, the low avalanche danger, and uh, expect rising avalanche danger likely this coming week. Thanks much, Greg. You can always find out more at utahavalanchecenter.org. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Stay tuned. Coming up, we'll be chatting with Carolyn Wara of the Utah Recycling Center about what's new in the world of trash. Then we're going to be talking with Jeremy Rubel to do a debrief about last night's city council. But first, let's look at some local news. With the Academy Awards fast approaching, Park City Film will be screening some of the nominees over the next several weeks. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has the details. This weekend, February 17th through the 19th, the nonprofit will showcase the Korean film Broker. Park City Film Executive Director Katie Wang said she personally thought director Hirokazu Korida was snubbed for a nomination in the Best Picture competition at the Oscars. Um, and this is a film about found families that are bound together by fate and circumstance rather than by blood, um, which is a common theme in, in his films. And this story follows two friends who are take orphaned babies from a church's baby box to sell in the black market until one day one of the mothers returns and insists on accompanying them on their journey to find a new family for her son. The following weekend, February 24th through the 26th, Park City Film will show Women Talking, which is nominated for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. And this is Sarah Pauly's latest film with an all-star cast. It has Frances McDormand, Claire Foy, Rudy Mara. It has been making waves throughout the independent film festival circuit. Um, and this is based on a true story, actually, about women in an isolated religious community who must decide how they will deal with years of abuse from the men in their community. Their choices are to stay and fight or leave forever because doing nothing is not an option. During the first weekend in March, people can catch the Polish film EO, which is a nominee for Best International Film. It's a beautiful and unconventional film about a former circus donkey named EO, based on the sound that he makes. Um, and he journeys across Europe. And the, the story is kind of exhilarating. It's a little bit absurd, somewhat strange, sometimes terrifying. It's just the film will, is guaranteed to steal your heart. On March 9th, Park City Film will screen She Said in partnership with Peace House. The film tells the true story of New York Times journalist Megan Twohey and Jody Cantor, who published a report exposing sexual abuse allegations against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. On the weekend of March 11th, all the Oscar-nominated short films will be on display at the Jim Santee Auditorium at the Park City Library. On Friday, March 10th, the animated shorts will be showing, followed by documentary shorts on Saturday and the live-action shorts on Sunday. Wang said the short film collections contain some material that is for mature audiences. She added that there was a clear winner in the vote for which new seats should replace the old ones last installed in 2003 at the Jim Santee. So we had over 375 people uh, take our survey of our seats, and they have voted on the green and blue fabric with the ergonomic seat cushion. Wang said the seats will likely be installed in mid-May. If people want to try them out, they can be found outside of the Park City Film Office on the third floor of the library. For more information on showtimes, visit parkcityfilm.org. The Academy Awards are Sunday, March 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Jimmy Kimmel is set to host. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. As the fourth annual Queer Ski Week returns next Tuesday, members of the community are using this tradition to raise money for Park City's LGBTQ task force, KPCW's Andrew Buchanan has the details. Next week, Park City Mountain welcomes Queer Ski Week to the slopes for several events. It's the second year the event will be a fundraiser for the LGBTQ plus task force in Park City. Joe Urenkar is a member of the task force. He said this year the queer ski events are growing and gaining traction. There's about a thousand people that come into town for Gay Ski Week. Um, and there's the what we're doing with queer ski these events is to to integrate better into the local community and culture and um, so I think there's been a tremendous interest from some of the tourists saying it's it's lovely to have this chance to get to know Park City and to see a different side of it. Urankar said the event is about inclusion and the proceeds will go to support task force programs such as mentorship opportunities, June Pride events, and in general more social opportunities for the community to come together. Cami Richardson is also a member of the task force. She said this year the group is hosting the first annual LGBTQ plus Pride Ski Parade. 
The parade begins at 12 p.m. at the top of McConkie's Lift at Park City Mountain. We'll be giving out some flags and things like that for people to, to ski with, and then we're going to head down Georgiana, ultimately past McConkie's and head down all the way down to the bottom of the mountain, or actually not to the bottom, but really to um, the snowed in. Urencar said there's more than one chance to ski with the community. They are hosting a first tracks on Tuesday, which is currently sold out, but he said he expects more spots to open soon. I just wanted to tell everyone to stay tuned if they're interested, and that's that's getting up onto the lifts at uh, 8 a.m. before it opens to the public. So that should be a really fun way just to, to see and experience the mountain, and then we'll have breakfast afterwards. Urencar said Queerski is taking over the Umbrella Bar on Friday for a tea dance from 1 to 4 p.m. So, so tea dances are, are something that grew out of gay culture in destination towns. So there's a few places throughout the country that um, the, the gay community retreats to over the summer, and they're mostly beach destinations. And um, a, a tea dance is, it's, it's kind of like a, a meet and greet, basically, just a chance for us to get together with some good music. It's usually in the afternoon on a beach or by a pool, and they're, they're very fun. They're very free and joyous events. Queer Ski Week begins Tuesday, February 21st and runs through Saturday, February 25th. For more information, visit the web version of this report at kpcw.org. Andrea Buchanan, KPCW News. One of the interesting things about the economic cycle is, is about how it is reflected not only in what we buy, but in what we throw away. In other words, the economic cycle-recycle relationship. Here to update us with the latest trash news from Recycle Utah is Carolyn Wara. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Mark City. Thanks for being here. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, what's going on in trash and how it relates to the economy. But first, let's start with the big picture. What kind of volume were you seeing at the, at the recycling center in 2022? So we just, um, every about this time every year, we finish up our numbers from the previous year. And uh, last year we saw 3.4 million pounds. And then for those that work in tons, that's about um, 17, almost 18,000, um, well, 1,700 tons. So, and, and that, okay, so let's try to put that into some context. Um, 2022 was obviously a year in which many would say the economy came back to life and people were more out and about than they had been. Just off the top of your head, during the big year of the pandemic, 2020, when everybody was staying home, what kind of volumes were you seeing back then? Um, we did. See, we saw a lot of glass then. Um, at Recycle Utah, we don't <laughs> see a lot of commercial glass, and you can read through the lines of um, alcohol was being drank at home, you know, from the liquor store to your house, and then to the recycle center. Whereas, um, you know, in a year like 2022, I think we went to a lot of restaurants. We went back out, and uh, we don't usually typically see glass from restaurants. You know, they usually work with you know, glass recycle like momentum to come pick up their own glass versus trying to haul it to us. And uh, it's kind of pain in the butt for restaurants to haul us glass anyway. So we prefer they work with uh, momentum on something like that anyway. And I know you saw an increase in cardboard at 1.2 million pounds of cardboard. I, that, that seems like a staggering amount. Can you put that into some kind of context for us? How, how, what, what, how would you lay that out? That's kind of a funny thing. Um, you know, the glass tonnage is almost equal to the cardboard tonnage. You know, the amount of total glass we do and the amount of car total cardboard we do. But cardboard's a lot lighter than glass. Um, and I was trying to put these, you know, 1.2 million pounds of cardboard. That, if we were to make like a yellow brick road of cardboard, we probably could make a road all the way to Las Vegas um, with the amount of cardboard we took. If we flattened it all out and put it down on a road and walked on our cardboard road to Vegas, we probably would have enough cardboard to get us there. Of course, we don't actually do that. What, what do you actually do with the cardboard? <laughs> um, cardboard has a pretty good uh, story in the recycling world. It's actually turned back into new cardboard usually. And um, like any kind of commodity out there or market item, um, this time of year, cardboard is being sold back to the cardboard recyclers. Um, we did finish our busiest time of year with cardboard. We see the most cardboard we see all year in uh, November, December timeframe. There's a, a lot of online shopping for Christmas presents, a lot of consumption that time of year, um, a lot of gathering at home, buying new things, decorating the house. We see a lot of stuff then. And so we collect a lot of cardboard. This time of year, we're sending it off to the recyclers. Recyclers are processing it, and they will sell that cardboard again to like an Amazon in July. So the cardboard market is actually very good in July in the summer months because the retailers are getting ready for the busy time, the Black Friday sales and stuff in November, December timeframe. Are, are sort of like buyer relationships, are they pretty constant or, or is there a market that you have to go like see what the best price you can get for the cardboard is? How does it work? Uh, we work with a broker usually and they kind of mm -hmm. do that shopping for us, but the markets are ever changing. Uh, most of our cardboard 
um, stays in Intermountain West. There is a paper mill in Salt Lake, uh, green fiber. That would be our first local option. And then we'll start, you know, if they're not looking, we'd start explore, exploring options in uh, Washington or Oregon. And uh, what are the economics of, of uh, do you actually get, you actually, you actually do get money for the cardboard, but in terms of the overall relationship of the economics of the recycling center, is, it a, is cardboard a break even for you or is it still a money loser when you count all the costs that it takes you to, 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 to run the operation? Um, cardboard's actually not consistently a moneymaker for us. Um, summertime, yes. Wintertime, not at all. Wintertime, we're usually paying someone to hold on to it until they're ready to make more cardboard. Um, so you're kind of paying a storage fee. Um, so the cardboard market changes all the time. Um, you know, eventually in a new center, we'll be able to hold on to our cardboard until the markets improve and then sell it then. Right now, we don't have that option given the size of our facility. So um, the cardboard market's super fluctuating. And then you have the hauling cost. Um, the cardboard needs to go to the broker in Salt Lake. So you're paying the truck to haul the cardboard there, which is also affecting, you know, any money the cardboard is worth, you have to factor in the haul. You know, if you were going to go to the grocery store, you'd factor in the price of your gas to get to the store before you were to go to buy your gallon of milk or something. Yeah, and I think it's important to touch on that because when we go to the recycling center and we see that little bin where you're asking us to throw in, throw in a buck or so, there are a lot of costs that it takes to get this project done. Right, yeah. The, I think the only thing that consistently makes us money that we're excited about is metals, you know, uh, metal bin and aluminum. Um, every other market's super volatile and ever-changing. Um, plastics we're constantly paying to get recycled. Um, cardboard changes all the time. Um, paper's usually consistent, but it fluctuates a little bit like cardboard. So once you start to see the recycling center is first you've got to pay for the haul. You've got to get the item to its final destination. And then you, it enters the marketplace. And how good is the marketplace at the time you're sending the product into the marketplace? You know, it's easy to see from a technological perspective how cardboard gets recycled. What happens to the plastic? Um, the plastic at the center, if you're familiar with the plastics tent, the two plastics on the left side, the soft plastics and the three through sevens, they get a waste to energy process about 30 miles away. Um, they're used to process to make cement. And then the plastics on the right side, the number ones and number twos usually, um, number twos would turn into something like trucks and number one would turn into something like a Patagonia fleece. Um, and we're pretty lucky that we're a very unique recycle center that we can sort to that level that those two plastics have a pretty good future ahead. And it's pretty rare to find, you know, a bale of only foggy milk jugs. Um, and I'm pretty proud of our community that we can deliver that and we can send it to the market with a future like um, being used for tracks. Yeah, th I think the sorting is really an interesting concept because as I understand it, the ability to de-aggregate mixed plastic waste is really difficult and very expensive. Yeah, plastic's about the hardest. You know, your curbside plastics, um, they go to a conveyor belt and they're kind of manually and digitally sorted from there. And you'd rely on a person to sort the plastics, you know, between a number one, number two, number three, number four, you know, and beyond. Um, you know, there's very few optical sorters that can sort at the level of plastics. I mean, really the problem with plastics, there's just too many types. You know, if I could wave my magic wand, I'd say, let's do only two types of plastics, the number ones and number twos, and let's get rid of everything else. So we, we started by talking about cardboard, and I want to come back to that, because one of the questions I had for you is, are we looking at a long-term secular change where what people buy is increasingly shipped to them? And that, so we're going to see sort of a higher flow of cardboard for the indefinite future. Right. And this is shown all across our community. Um, you know, the two biggest things in our community landfill that don't belong there are food waste and cardboard. And those both are organic materials, so they generate methane. So across the community at the recycling center or in the landfill or curbside, cardboard's kind of been an increasing headache for a lot of us because the volumes are so high. And that's how we kind of consume materials right now. You know, it's easy to go to Amazon and put it in your cart and the item appears on your doorstep in a cardboard box. And then, you know, depending on the size of the cardboard box, you might be able to break it down to put in your curbside bin or maybe you bought new furniture or a bike. And it's easier for us to take that kind of cardboard at the recycling center. Um, you know, in talking to my counterparts at other recycling centers, they built a recycling center that doesn't handle cardboard and plan for the changes in cardboard. You know, I'm familiar with the one in Jackson Hole and they built a whole storage building to store cardboard. Um, you know, to wait for this market improvement thing. And when that facility was created, you know, 15 years ago, they did not see this influx in cardboards, you know, like learning from them that's, you know, in your new facility, Risaki, Utah, you need to plan for cardboard processing and storage because this is where we're headed in terms of materials and volume. And can you have even a, a gut estimate as to what percentage of the cardboard you see is related to online purchasing? I'd say it's very high. I'd say 
60 to 75 percent would be online purchasing um, just looking at the boxes you know chewy amazon um you know the online ordering type boxes so I think that's so, so obviously that's a trend that's here to stay and as you say that when you're planning the new center you're sort of going to be planning on this this high level of cardboard for the indefinite future. Yeah, we plan to do more cardboard, probably get involved in some co commercial entities and how they take in cardboard already, you know, a Deer Valley, uh, Cole Sport brings us all their cardboard, you know, their employees will drive it to our center and we send them directly back to the cardboard baler, you know, so they're kind of not interacting with the normal guests and they can, you know, directly access the baler put the cardboard in there. And so t t I've always wondered what happens back there in the, where, where the baler is and the, the mystery behind the curtain. I never get beyond the big bin. Um, I will give you a tour. I'll give anybody a tour. Any of us will take you back there. Uh, right now it's a little bit of ice skating rink. I recommend you bring your ice skates. Uh, we don't have very good drainage at the recycle center. It's a little slippery back there. Um, but our balers, baler is kind of the bread and butter of the recycling center. You know that the baler is the thing that combines the loads. You know, if you we were to send our materials out unprocessed or unbailed, we'd be shipping air most of the time. And the more consolidated loads we can get by bailing or combining or densifying materials, the more efficient our hauls are. You know, if we're paying to send a truck to Salt Lake with material in it, and there's a bunch of air in there, we're driving around air. And if we can compress it and tie it up in a bale, um, bale is kind of the closest thing, like a hay bale, but it'd be a cardboard bale. You probably, if you come to the recycle center, you'd see them all over a lot. And let's, um, any, anything else to touch on on the cardboard side? Because if not, I want to move over to glass. Sure, we can move on to glass. Okay, well, I can see right through that. Um, Carolyn, what's, uh, what's, what's going on in terms of, obviously, you cannot recycle glass with your curbside at this point, right? And so how important a role do you guys play in terms of glass recycling, and how much do you think is still going to the landfill? Right. Um, again, I'll reiterate what Roger said. Um, no glass can go in your curbside. You're not an exception or anything. And the reason behind <laughs> this is there's... The sorting facilities in Salt Lake that sort out the sort out the commingled, um, they do not sort to the level of glass. This might exist in a you know a state like California that invests more in the sorting facility. Utah's sorting facilities don't sort with glass, so uh, that's why it can't go in there, and that's why it needs to be separated. Um, I do think that there is a fair amount of good glass glass recycling going on. We are lucky to have a glass recycler located in Salt Lake, and they kind of grind on the glass and turn it back into a sand-like material. And then um, from there, it goes on to um, sometimes Owens Corning. There's an Owens Corning factory in Nephi. If you're driving to Moab, you'd see it on your left-hand side there. And uh, Owens Corning will turn it into fiberglass insulation. It's usually a path for glass um, from Salt Lake area. And in terms of glass going to landfill, I don't know that number off the top of my head. I don't think it's a big, a big number. Um, in terms of items in the landfill, I'm kind of okay with glass being the landfill. Glass is made from sand in the first place. It's an inert material. It's going to be in the landfill for a very long time, but it won't cause any problems like you would see from food waste or cardboard, which are organic materials that create methane. So glass in the landfill, not a bad thing in terms of things in the landfill. You know, I'd rather see glass in the landfill than cardboard or food waste any day. So what are the alternatives uh, in, in the community for bringing it to the recycling center? I know there have been some bins. Are those going to remain open? I know there's some private services. Can you just sort of share with the audience what their alternatives yeah. are? That's a perfect segue. Um, there is an opt-in program. If you'd like glass um, curbside, you can sign up through Momentum. I think it's $12 a month, and then they come once one time a month to come get your glass. So that's an option if that's easy for you. And then Recycle Utah does have remote glass bins throughout the county. Um, we are making some changes to that program by the end of this month. Um, we are going from four bins down to two bins. And this is not because we don't like glass recycling. We love glass recycling. So much of the program reached capacity. And um, this is a logistical change. The truck that was used to pick up glass previously was a front loader. This means the truck pulls up the bin, has some little forks in the front, grabs it and dumps it in the back of the bin. And that size truck only has a capacity of so much weight and so much space. And that type of truck reaches capacity to haul the glass down the canyon. So we're switching to a different type of truck that uses a different type of bin. Um, and the bin is a lot bigger. So working with our partners that those bins stay at, we're trying to find the right partners in the right space. So um, this is the important part. Um, the Summit Park location will be discontinued as well as the Willow Creek location. Those will be discontinued. You can now find glass recycling at Ecker Hill Park and Ride and then Triumph Gear Station. Triumph Gear is kind of across from Home Depot um, out by the Silver Summit Gas Station. So if you bring glass to the two discontinued locations, it will not be recycled. We're encouraging you to either bring it to the center, um, bring it to Triumph, or bring it to Ecker Hill Park and Ride. And there'll be some bigger bins there. You'll transition just fine. <laughs> 
Um, and again, how big was the recycling program for glass last year? Oh, I didn't add up my numbers specific to glass. Um, I'm not real quick at math. <laughs> <laughs> I think you told me, when we were talking before yeah. the show, uh, you've already forgot, we, you estimated that a half a million pounds of glass went through the program last year. Right, and that remote bin program alone um, came in at 493,000. So again, this program reached its capacity for the type of truck it was using and it was time to make a change. Um, so it will be a roll-off bin. Um, that's very similar to what you'd see at the recycling center, um, but still operating there, just not the front load bin. One other question, I want, I want to get to PFAS, but one other question I wanted to touch on was, we talked a lot about curbside recycling. Um, how important is it that you get the food out of the, out of the, out of the stuff before you send it into that bin? What happens if you don't? That's a great question. Um, we kind of <laughs> preach about 90% clean, and I can give you two good examples of that. A peanut butter jar, uh, give it to your dog, or use a spatula and scrape it out. You don't need to use any water for that. Um, that would be clean enough. A spatula, spatula of the dog for the peanut butter jar and maybe a yogurt container. If you finish with your spoon and take your finger and do a swipe through, that's good enough too. You don't need to use water for either of these things. Another common thing would be a pizza box. Um, the greasy side with the pizza, um, use a 90% rule there. You know, if you see 10% grease, it's fine to recycle. If it's a really greasy pizza, you know, a meat lover's pizza or something like that, that might be pushing the 10% dirty rule, so. What, what, what would happen if you didn't do it? I mean, if, if, if a greasy pizza box hits a recycling thing, what happens to it? Um, that would be in the cardboard category. And right. cardboard, I tell people it's the most like a bowl of oatmeal. You know, if you had tape in your oatmeal, it's easy to grab out like that. Um, the oils from the pizza box would probably rise to the top and they'd probably skim it off the top in the process of recycling. You know, cardboard's a water pulp process recycling, so. Obviously not too much oil in that process. But it slows things down and it, it, costs, it costs more money I take on the back end. Right. Yep. It's fine to leave tape, labels, everything on your cardboard. Um, I think, you know, the, and you use the 90% rule for something like a pizza box. I want to talk about PFAS, but I don't know what it is. So sure. why don't we start with that? Uh, we've been partnering with um, Park City Water Department, uh, Summit County Health, um, and a couple entities around town. Um, Park City detected there was PFAS, polyfluoral chemicals in uh, four of our groundwater sources here in town. There was trace amounts and they've did some research to find this was coming from our ski waxes. Um, the, you know, the fastest kind of ski wax usually has fluorocarbons in it. And so we're working to collect ski waxes from uh, local residents to get this out of our water system here. How would it be getting into the water system? People would put it on their, wax their skis with it, go mm -hmm. skiing around Valley, and then that water would drain into the well, and then the water department would detect this PFAS in the water. So it's actually coming off the skis on, on the, in, onto the snow, on, onto yeah. the snow mm -hmm. and melting it down. That is such a Park City problem. <laughs> totally. um, and it's only happening within, you know, within Park City. So if you feel like we can catch it soon, you know, this could be like, you know, it spreads if we found it here and then we found it here and everything. So we're trying to get ahead of it a little bit and be aggressive on this. And um, I attended council meeting with Michelle DeHaan from the Park City water team last night. And uh, we were able to pass their, um, there's a, within the water world, there's potential contamination sources. This is a list of things that we say we don't want ever to get in our water. These are things like chemicals, like you wouldn't want to drop chemicals down your drain or really aggressive salts for salting the roads. There's kind of a list of things that the water department says, absolutely not. We don't want these in our water system. Our best bet is to just not use them. And they just added uh, PFAS to this list last night. So what's going to happen? Are we going to like sort of encourage the community to change the wax they use to avoid this? Is that, is that, is that what the project is? Yeah, right. We've explored um, everything from working with ski shops to see what their inventory of this kind of wax is and how we can get it out of their store or at least off their shelf, you know, so their people aren't encouraged to use this kind. Um, we've done everything like that. And then at a national level, the EPA within the next two years is going to kind of heavily regulate this as well. And um, the action we took last night is kind of putting us ahead of the actions in the EPA over a PFAS compound. Like PFAS is found in um, some clothing items. It's found in like Teflon pans. Um, it's a lot of things and it's just starting to kind of show up across the U.S. and different things. And locally we found it coming from our ski racks. And I take it that alternative ski racks give you a similar amount of grip and grind for in terms of the performance on the on the flats? I'm no expert skier, but we should we could ask Charlie George about this or something. Um, on that note, we do have a, if you trade in wax to Recycle Utah, we'll give you a sustainable wax for free. So um, no minimum or anything like that. We just want to see you try something different and try something new. So we'll have that wax in tomorrow. We're just waiting on our last shipment and we got to pick it up in Salt Lake today. Carolyn, anything else you want to touch on before we go? No, just a reminder again on the glass bin changes. Um, they're remaining at Ecker Hill Park and Ride and they'll be at Triumph, but they will no longer be at Willow Creek Park or Summit Park. 
Thanks. We've been talking with Carolyn Wara of Utah Recycle. As growth brings new challenges in the Hebrew Valley, county government wants to shore up its approach to nightly rental homes and property taxes. KPCW's Ben Lasseter has more. While short-term rentals on Airbnb and VRBO offer convenient places for travelers to stay, neighbors say visitors can be noisy and take up their parking. A short-term rental is technically a business that needs a license, but not every host gets permission from the county first, and that's hard to enforce under current laws. At a meeting Wednesday, Wasatch County Council members and staff said regulations should be clearer, license easier to get, and enforcement more consistent. Wasatch County Councilman Mark Nelson said updating county code for nightly rentals should be a short-term priority to prepare for a tourism boom. We need to realize where we live and what's becoming of this valley, you know, how fast it's going to grow. And we're already a county that has half of our homes are secondary homes. And that number is probably not going to go down. That number is going to go up. And so these problems will even be exacerbated. The council didn't make any decisions during the talk. County manager Dustin Graybaugh said he and staff would work on new rules and offer ideas to the council at a future meeting. After that discussion, the council moved to taxes. Members of the Utah State Tax Commission attended the meeting. That agency's responsibilities include helping local assessors statewide ensure their residents' appraised property values are up-to-date and equitable. It's the first public meeting between the county and state agencies since Utah State Auditor John Dougal published a letter in January that addressed Wasatch County residents paying unfairly high property taxes. The letter said the state tax commission failed to take corrective action or notify the state auditor about the inequities as required by state law. Council members asked Joshua Nielsen of the tax commission what's being done to address those criticisms. He said it comes down to collecting better data on all of the county's properties so that everyone has an accurate appraisal value and pays their fair share in property taxes. Nielsen said the audit helped his office find ways to improve the situation, and he's working with county assessor Todd Griffin to get caught up. Nielsen credited Griffin for making progress to resolve the problem in 2022. He also questioned whether all the scrutiny against the offices overseeing Wasatch County property taxes is justified. The more technology you have and the more transparency you have, the more you start to notice these things. I think it's very, very fair to say that currently, this may be the best it's ever been in Wasatch County. But because of this transparency and the technology, everybody's putting out every single little flaw that's out there. Whereas if this was around 10 or 15 years ago, how bad would it have looked? Um, that's not an, ex you know, an excuse or and it's not like, hey, like rah, 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 it's just, that's the situation we're in. Last year, some residents reported their property taxes as much as tripled since the year before. Griffin said it's a result of his office being behind on assessments over the last decade since before he was elected. In Utah, taxing entities collect fixed amounts of revenue each year. That means when homes go years without appraisal updates during a time of rising property values, more recently assessed homes get bigger tax bills. Nielsen said there are other reasons for optimism. Those include the Utah legislature considering requiring agencies to release better property data on market values and a new employee in the state office to help county assessors with mass appraisals. A link to the full meeting is available in the web version of this report on kpcw.org. Ben Lasseter, KPCW News. Jeremy Rubel has joined us in the studio to talk about last night's city council meeting. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Roger. How are you? I'm pretty good. So let's talk about what you guys chatted about last night. I think you started by talking about transit. Um, what were the principal points that you went over last night? Yeah, the, the main things, um, first off, we're experiencing a big spike in transit ridership compared to last year, which is a very good thing, right? Um, up over 50%, actually, almost to the pre-pandemic levels that we think, um, or staff mentioned, they think we're going to recover to by next year. Also, we talked about the Silver Bus Line, which is the express of sorts from Old Town to Richardson Flat, which also stops at Park City Heights. Um, so we're really excited about that, and they're going to come back. The staff is with some options on how to continue that regular service year-round, because we just did it as a pilot for the winter. Uh, and lastly, we, we talked a lot about microtransit, and if that was working for the city or not, and if adjustments needed to be made. Let's let's talk about Richardson Flat. What kind of volume are we seeing? Is, is it getting the kind of use? I mean, historically, people have complained that Richard, the Richardson Flat parking lot was a, a monument to nothing. Um, but now we're actually getting some usage out of it. What, what are you seeing in terms of volumes? Yeah, we are. We have a bunch of data. Uh, we asked for a little bit more to understand the hour distribution of ridership to see where, where people really are using that bus line and using Richardson Flat. Um, 
again, it, it's sort of a side use of, of this goal, though, right? We want to serve our housing developments. We want to serve Park City Heights. And we figure as long as we're going out there, why not also serve Richardson Flat and promote some of our goals of, of transit ridership, getting people out of their personal vehicles. Uh, I think the, the highest numbers we saw were a few thousand trips a day, um, or boardings, I guess we call them, at Richardson Flat, which is pretty good. And then there were some numbers, I think it was during Sundance, where we had almost 400 cars parked out there, which, again, pretty pretty good. I, I think we were all surprised at the success. And, you know, that's why we want to try things and see what works, adjust as needed. So actually, are we see, so people were actually seeing people using it as a, as a commuter lot, essentially. They're, they're, they're parking, going to their jobs. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of employees, especially in the Old Town area, that they enjoy the quick bus that, that heads from there right into town. Um, we have the express lane on 248 coming in, so you get a wave to the car sitting in traffic as you get to your, your job there. Um, skiers also use it. They just have to transfer either at the high school or Bonanza or Old Town or walk down to the town lift if they're going to Park City Mountain. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of pros here, and there's a lot of good use we're seeing and different types of use. So we're going to dig into that a little more. Has there been any thought to adding a stop at, one, uh, at the resort for that Richardson Flat bus? Yeah, there's been discussions with both major resorts about it. Um, you know, we'll see during this off season. I think this year everyone had the perspective of we're going to try some things and, and see what works. Um, if this was successful, that it would be worth talking about further and, and seeing if we can't partner with them. And I guess, Jeremy, you, you mentioned microtransit. First of all, let's talk about what is the existing microtransit program to, to set this framework. Yeah, uh, so right now we set up a few microtransit zones, essentially Thanes Canyon, Park Meadows, and the Royal Street area. And the reason we picked those is there are areas not served by fixed route bus service, and we wanted to, uh, you know, give it a shot and, and see if we can get folks from those areas who say, oh, I'd use the bus, but it's too far to walk or, you know, whatnot. Um, and honestly, the adoption was very slow. It was very slow at the start. Right now, we're seeing somewhere in the three to 400 rides per week range, I think. Um, you know, it's still, still pretty low. We were talking, Caroline Rodriguez from High Valley Transit was presenting to us. She's very knowledgeable about this and kind of said, look, our, our recommendation would be to expand the microtransit zone and let the logic algorithm around who gets served with microtransit versus fixed route buses be driven by the technology rather than lines we're drawing in neighborhoods just because the, they don't have a fixed route bus at the moment. Um, so we asked a little bit more about that and how quickly that could be implemented. She's going to come back with some information there. And the other question we asked was, well, if we can't implement that quickly enough for the ski season because the, the vendor takes some time to do things, then does it make sense to reduce our service hours that we're making it available? And that could mean instead of two vans in one of those areas, we have one van. Um, it could mean instead of running from you know, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., we shrink that to, to a different window or move the window. And she's going to look at that as well and come back with some analysis there to tell us how, you know, either optimize the cost without sacrificing service levels or expand the service area to provide greater service levels at the same cost. And while we're on it, we should just... Uh how, how would the listeners, if they were interested in trying to use the current microtransit system, how, how do they go? How does it work? Yeah, you just go um, to the app store on your phone and download the High Valley Transit app, and it's all right in there. And so it provides them with a free ride, essentially, to a bus stop? Is that how it works? Yeah, it depends where you're coming from and going to. Uh, sometimes it's point to point, and you don't need to get on a fixed route bus. Sometimes it'll take you to a bus stop, and you transfer and you know, head wherever you're, you're going. And what do you think? Is, is, is micro a long-term answer for us, or do we just need to see more data? We probably need to see more data. You know, again, we, we tried it as a pilot. Um, it's one of the things on the disruptive ideas list that we're going to be looking at, which we can talk a little more about. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things out there that people look at and say, oh, this will never happen, mm -hmm. right? Be it a gondola or a tunnel or flex lanes on, on 248 or other roads. And, uh, you know, really, microtransit's part of that conversation. It's part of the whole transportation network. And we have to define the goals, what are we trying to accomplish, and then find the technologies and methods to, to reach those goals. Well, I, I can't resist getting into disruption, Jeremy. Um, and we were going to get there eventually, but I, we're going to go there now. So let's take a step back. Give the viewers an overall picture of 
the way we're looking at disruptive, disruptive travel ideas, you know, how is that process going to work? Yeah, we brought on a consulting firm to help us. We actually uh, authorized that last night as well. And in the retreat, which is a couple weeks from now, I think it's March 2nd and 3rd, that Thursday and Friday, um, we will be discussing a lot of these ideas. And they're going to continue and, and look at them and tell us what they think works and what doesn't. Uh, the biggest ones that are on the list, I think we've talked about in the past, congestion pricing, that could be a, around traffic. It could also be around dynamic pricing with parking. Um, gondolas, we mentioned tunnels, flex lanes, we mentioned how transit hubs should work, where they should be located in town. We also are, are looking at launching the Bonanza Park small area plan, and that'll be a consideration for that. Um, and honestly, that study, which, which is really great, and a big thank you to UDOT, they put up a bunch of grant money. So we're, we're paying a very small portion, I think 25000 from the city and 80000 or, or so from UDOT, if I recall the numbers correctly. Um, you know, the, the outlook is probably what can we do in five to ten years, which is always tough because we want immediate results. So it's a complementary strategy of trying things, adjusting things, continuous improvement while we plan big ideas and strategies um, and keep ourselves from falling in the trap of, oh, that won't be done for eight years, that won't be done for 10 years, so let's not do it. And then 10 years from now, we look and are in the same situation. And we would never have the Hoover Dam if people thought like that. There you go. Um, so let, let's, 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 let's sort of break this down. The study is going to take how long, approximately? You know, I'm not sure. We didn't get into too many details. Okay. I think in the retreat is what we'll really dive into that. And in the retreat, are you going to sort of actually, e even though the study's underway, you're going to talk about some of these specific ideas. You've mentioned um, uh, reversible, uh, changeable lanes. Let, let's talk a little about that one because changeable lanes, you know, just from a superficial, totally uninformed perspective, that looks like the cheapest thing to do. Like to have some lanes go some way, some one way in, during some hours and go the other way during other hours. Is, 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 is it as easy as I think it is? Probably not. Well, I'd probably be in the same boat as you, right. saying, you know, can't we just call UDOT and put up a LED sign and change the lanes? Um, if it were that easy, it, it would Wouldn't probably have been done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm no traffic engineer, so I'm definitely out of my depth on that. But, um, you know, we do work with UDOT on these solutions. They give their professional advice on what works and what doesn't, because they do this for a living, and we, re we rely a lot on that advice. Um, that'll be part of the study. That'll be part of, of the ongoing discussions. Um, it also, you know, there's been some things discussed around the management of 248 and if that's something that Park City would take over or UDOT's going to keep or, you know, how that works. Um, and then in the near term, we've spoken recently about adding an express bus lane leaving town. So right now we only have one coming into town, but if we shift the lanes a little bit, we can have a, a shoulder heading the other direction too out towards Park City Heights and Richardson Flat, which could, you know, help pretty quickly. And so um, this retreat that's coming up, March, what, what is the date for that? I believe it's the second and third. It's that Thursday, Friday. And is the public invited to participate in that? Absolutely. It's open to the public. It's uh, like any other public meeting. And what will happen during that session? Are they going to sort of talk about some of these alternatives? Or are we going to see slideshows and, and explanations of, of possibilities? Yeah, lots of things. I mean, we'll go through a bunch of different policies. We haven't had the agenda released yet. We get it at the same time that the public does. So. It's kind of a big cliffhanger surprise, what, what we'll be spending two days doing. Um, but generally, we know we'll be talking about some, some disruption in the transportation area. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about traffic mitigation. You know, I do want to highlight the, the resorts outside of the things we've already talked about. They're doing a lot on their own also and in collaboration with the community. Um, and both of them are going about it in a slightly different way, but we're seeing a lot of really effective results. So that'll be part of the conversation, I'm sure, is, you know, we don't just want to do stuff in isolation. We want to work with our partners and really collaborate. Let's talk about what the resorts have done this year. Has the sort of change in the, in the parking at Park City uh, had the kind of effect that, that the resort and the city would have hoped for? You know, that's a better conversation probably for the retreat. I'm mm -hmm. guessing that'll, well, that'll be a topic, right. uh, in my opinion, right. as kind of a layman looking at it. I mean, I, I do think it's being very effective. Um, we've heard for Park City Mountain that they've had a massive shift towards carpooling, which is fantastic. You know, and a lot of times we say, we're not going to change people's behavior. They're not going to carpool. They're not going to get on a bus. They're not going to use micro. And we're taking the approach of, well, let's prove that theory. 
And um, I think they're, they're kind of disproving that theory and they are showing high carpooling adoption through their mechanisms. Um, you know, there, there's still traffic, right? We don't want to pretend there's <laughs> no traffic anymore or anything, but have we seen incremental improvements? Yeah, and I, I think they've exceeded expectations. I think the other thing you're seeing, at least, again, anecdotally, one person's observations, is that on the weekends, when the parking is sold out, the fact that there's a reservation has spaced out the people's arrivals. So mm -hmm. you don't see that terribly massive, horrible backup on Saturday morning. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I come in that way um, down 224 Park Avenue, and, you know, again, just as an observation, I, I don't have the data in front of me, it feels like it's flowing better than it has in the past through spacing it out. And, you know, same with Deer Valley Resort. Um, some of the things that they've put into place and in their traffic management strategies seem to have also helped. They announced their direct shuttles from the um, school complex just recently, knowing that they're going to be busy. So, you know, again, we're all trying stuff. We're all working together and trying to, to do the best we can for the community. Jeremy, you, you mentioned the Bonanza Park and the Arts and Culture District. Let's review, where are we with that and what came up last night? Yeah, so we talked about the proposal. Um, it's kind of a, a joint proposal. We had two RFPs go out. One firm was recommended. Um, one piece is an arts and culture feasibility study. And to put it bluntly, the, the goal of that is to answer the question, does the community want an arts and culture district? Yes or no? And they said that'll take three to four months to get to that answer. Concurrently, we also put out an RFP for the Bonanza Park Small Area Plan. And if you circle that, it kind of goes from, um, I guess you could say Snow Creek all the way to the Deer Valley Drive Park Avenue intersection. And also it considers the areas around it. Um, you know, we're, we're gonna embark on it soon probably. Uh, we'll talk about that also at the retreat in a little more detail. But uh, yeah, wheels are turning. So if you, when you're gonna go out to ask the community if they want an arts and culture district, don't we sort of have to explain to them what it would mean for them? I mean, because if you ask me if I want an arts and culture district, I'd go, what's that? And I've been reading about this stuff for years. Yeah, that's what the three or four months is gonna take. Um, so they, they spoke to it last night, the firm that was recommended. Um, the approach is they're gonna run a lot of community outreach. They're gonna do these workshops. They're gonna show people examples of what's worked other places how it would apply in their opinion as, as professionals in this space to the Park City community and gather feedback and really go from there. And what's your take on it at this point? I mean, wh what do you think it could look like? You know, my, my main desire for that area, it's right in the center of town. It's gotta be fantastic, right? We're a world-class destination. Um, I also really hope it, it becomes a community gathering place. So I think the focus should be on the community the focus should be on what the community needs are at the time and also looking out into the future. Like we talked about the, the transportation stuff. You know, this isn't about what do we want a year or two years from now. This is a forever project. We've got to get it right and, and we've got to really serve this community so it's a place people want to live, not just visit. Any other topics you want to touch on uh, from last night's meeting, Jeremy? You know, that, that's probably the, the big stuff. Uh, you know, I'll mention again on the retreat, the location is the library community room. Um, the agenda will be out next week, I believe. Usually they come out about a week, week and a half before the meetings. Um, like you mentioned, it's open to the public. We encourage participation. We wanna hear the feedback. That's how we, we make this place better for everyone. Jeremy, before we go, um, there was news yesterday that probably more directly affects the county than the city. And that was the passage of SB 84, which essentially, um, as I understand it, takes uh, the land use decision regarding the D Dakota Pacific essentially out of the hands of the Summit County Council. Do you, do you have any reaction to that? I mean, I, it looks to me like it's a, it's a, it's a fairly aggressive legislative move. Yeah, I, I can comment briefly. We haven't gone into the details of, of the actual bill, but at a high level, you know, we've seen the same summaries. Um, you know, the, the Park City Municipal Government believes in making decisions at the local level we're closest to the community and the people who visit and live here, so we feel like we're really well equipped to do so. Um, our legislative platform supports that, so you know we'll, we'll look into this deeper. We'll see where it goes, but um, you know, at, at a top level, it would be concerning for us to have the state take control of those local land use 
decisions. We've been talking with Jeremy Rubel, recapping last night's Park City Council meeting. A 14-year-old boy died after falling through ice at a Tooele County Reservoir Monday night. It's a tragic reminder that ice can be dangerous no matter how safe it may seem. KPCW's Andrew Buchanan has this report. Search and rescue crews worked late into Monday night after receiving a call that a boy fell through the ice at the Settlement Canyon Reservoir in Tuala. He was walking with other boys when two of them fell in. One was able to get out alive, the other was not. Sean Brigden is tech operations engineer at Station 33 on Bittner Road in Summit County. He said his station crew is trained in special technical rescue disciplines such as ice rescues. With ice, ice can be tricky because in, in kind of a safety standpoint, ice is never 100% safe. He explained thickness is key when it comes to recreating on ice. Checking the thickness of ice in multiple places is important. And, you know, like avid enthusiasts that, that do go fishing a lot, they have the tools to do that when they use their augers to drill through the ice and they can really kind of get hands-on and find out how thick that ice is but that's really the only way to know so just being cautious anytime you're on ice um, is is really the only way. Brigden said there are a few target hazards in Summit County for ice recreation. Willow Creek Pond on Old Ranch Road is one that's deep enough to be considered hazardous and people should take precautions. Is ice in itself clear ice is stronger than ice with snow on it because it's what happens is over time in the temperature gradient of the day, the ice melts a little bit and then refreezes at night. So you just get that thickness of ice building up. Brigden said always take a friend when venturing out onto ice and let someone who is not on the ice know where you are. He also said if there's an ice accident, the first thing to do is call 911. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want multiple victims to fall through the ice. So if somebody does fall through the ice, having, having only one party at risk instead of multiples trying to you know go out and pull somebody off the ice without without help or a support system for more ice safety tips visit the web version of this report at kpcw.org